The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 22 verses. This is the aftermath of the healing of a lame man in the temple as Peter gave that command for healing in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus. So it is Peter and John who are spoken of as this chapter begins. Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them had nothing to say in opposition. So when they had commanded them to leave the council, They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have heard and seen. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
This is the word of God. I find it reported from multiple sources. I checked this because it's a little hard to believe. I made sure of my sources. It is reported that last month when national political party conventions were coming together, one of the parties had its convention in a southern city, and the local association of evangelical Christian pastors beforehand wrote a letter to the national party headquarters, the officials that would put on this nominating convention. The pastors offered a friendly welcome of hospitality to their city. They had some other particular offers. They said, we are willing to organize free housing if any delegates of your party would find it expensive to attend and could prefer to stay for free in someone's home. And we will offer free, carefully monitored child care at our churches if that hospitality would be useful to any of your party delegates. And then they mentioned in their letter also that on the opening day of the convention, the pastors and others planned to gather for prayer at an open plaza, not right at the doors of the convention hall, but within sight of the hall, where they wanted to pray and promise that they would seek the blessing of God on the entire endeavor of this party assembly. They got a reply. It's reported that the reply from party leaders, first of all, flatly declined all hospitality offers, either housing or child care. But then went on to say that the city police had been warned of the pastor's intent to hold, quote, an illegal public demonstration. Now this same convention, it is reported, later on in the week, welcomed Islamic imams who gathered in the hall where the convention was happening for prayer by permission. If that hostile reaction to biblical Christianity in American society stuns you, I guess I can only say, where have you been? Definitely not watching the news that I watch. And it might even be that you have not read the book of Acts that well to see the nature of opposition to Christianity in its birth state in the New Testament. We have in Acts studied the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the first large-scale evangelistic revival, the first Christian sermon, and then last time, the first miracle performed by an apostle through the name of Jesus, not by his power as some kind of healer or magician, but calling on the power and the great name of Jesus for a bodily deliverance, which happened. And as a direct result of that miracle, now Acts 4 reports another first, the first opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that will run throughout this whole book. I think, I didn't scientifically check this, but I would say just off the top of my head, you will probably see some part of opposition to Christians in every chapter remaining in Acts. And as the book ends, it will end on that note with Paul hauled up before a tribunal of Rome on false charges. It's important that we understand why Christianity is opposed. Here, out of the blue, with the gospel seeing great favor, many people coming to believe in it, 
Acts tells us here that the number of Christians has grown to at least 5,000 men by this point, only counting the men, the heads of households. Certainly that means a much larger number than that in a city that was, I assure you, smaller in size and population than the city of Lancaster, Jerusalem at that time. And yet suddenly persecution came down like a hammer And it fell unreasonably and suddenly and with a determination to stamp out the life-transforming witness of the gospel. We need to understand this. We need to understand the nature of unbelief that does these things. Now, one way we can understand it is that it was predicted. And in fact, not only was it predicted by Jesus himself, it became very predictable. Jesus predicted it in John 15:18 when he said before he died to his disciples, "If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. And if you were of this world, if you belonged to the world, they would love you and call you their own. But a servant is not greater than his master, and so they will persecute you as they persecuted me." Satan hates zeal for Christ. No matter what period of history it emerges in. And we should not be surprised to see this opposition. We don't court it. We don't seek it. We don't welcome it. But we will meet it. All real Christianity will be opposed. And persecution is a kind of badge that God's people wear. Not to be paranoid about but to be realistic about. And the die for it is cast here in Acts 4. The patterns, the motives of it act very consistently throughout all of history. Wonderfully, you know, we see already beginning here, just as persecution is beginning, the church is continuing to grow, and this is the way it has gone through church history. You know, it it, it never works the way the opponents want it to. They think, we will stamp out these Christians. Well, they stamp and they stamp, and the more they stamp, the more the Christians grow. The saying of the church throughout the ages has been, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Oppose us, and we are the more determined to cling to what we believe about our Lord and Savior. We learn here that the human reaction against a supernaturally risen Christ is not a rational reaction. It is instead a kind of blind refusal to see what God has done. And the pattern of that is consistent throughout history. First of all, today in Acts 4, we have this principle, I'll state it this way, the church and state and the academy willingly unite against a risen Lord. What we have here are disparate groups, different groups of people, all responding to this miracle of the healing of a lame man. And the people are named who they are. They couldn't tolerate this disturbance going on on their turf. They were the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests, of course, were Levites who who led the ceremonies in the temple. The captain of the temple were probably ultimately Romans, although there were temple police who were Jews. The Romans supervised the whole thing. And then are named the Sadducees, an unusual group of folks who were aristocratic Jews, high-born people, usually wealthy, usually owning a good amount of land, well-educated, 
They saw themselves as intellectuals. They were the scholars along with the scribes of the temple, but these folks saw themselves as occupying a higher plane than most other people. They had an entirely worldly outlook. They were anti-supernatural. They did not believe in a religion that included the resurrection or miracles. And yet, ironically, these were the very people who had the supervision of the temple of God. Isn't that amazing? The completely secular folks were in charge of God's temple. You can imagine how they sneered disdainfully to greet the message that Peter had introduced with this healing. Church and state and academy seem like unusual allies, and yet we can say that they united before in coming against Jesus Christ. These were the same basic people who conspired to create the cross. I'm thinking of Luke 23, 12, where it says that before their meeting and their exchange over Jesus, King Herod and Pontius Pilate didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They didn't respect each other. And yet Luke points out that they found common cause in taking Jesus to his cross and a new kind of uneasy friendship, I guess. Unbelief has always proved to be one of the world's great uniting forces. It brings people together, not by what they're for, but what they're against. And we see the same thing today. In leftward-leaning churches, many of which once had in them the true gospel of God, who once followed Orthodox creeds, once taught Christ crucified and risen and the need to trust in him, who today have, at best, only hollow echoes of that message. And these churches mix in with a left-leaning state at every level, from federal to local. And a leftist culture in universities and colleges today, no one could deny that that is prevalent. And you put it all together and you have a kind of triumvirate, a coalition of unbelief, people who will close ranks on what they disagree with and on what they will not allow, and who will, in fact, lampoon and mock that belief in a supernatural God in Christ. The nominal church, secular state, elitist individuals in the intellectual realm. What's the, what's the boast always, especially in the universities? Oh, we have open minds. We need to open our minds to think new thoughts. Well, there are people in that realm who have minds as wide open as airplane hangers that almost anything can fly into and does. And yet, those open minds slam shut when you begin to talk about Christ and his kingdom. And then when those ideas are brought in for discussion, instead of the intellectual exchange and objectivity, what you have Instead of their grand ideal of tolerance, the great God of today is tolerance. Oh, we have to tolerate everybody else. You have iron-fisted intolerance when it comes to Jesus, the Son of God. And this is not an imaginary statement at all. You have people who reject biblical ideals, not only of God and Christ and the Trinity and salvation and the cross and resurrection, but Everything else, the entire moral structure of the Bible. Marriage. Who is marriage for? 
Sexuality. How do we express it? You have today, I've, I've read some things recently that I don't know whether I'm just naive or what. You have folks who actually believe, people with two or three PhDs, who actually believe that we are headed towards a society in which their desire is that gender will disappear. We will no longer talk about gender because, after all, it's simply a notion of our minds. I don't want to be alive when that idea takes over. But there are people who seriously are headed that way. The entire moral code of the Bible for these folks is thought to be outmoded. So what? That 3,000 years of Western civilization has been built upon it. Judeo-Christian ethics. So what? Let's liberate our minds. Let's be open. Church and state and academy are willingly uniting against a risen Lord. Well, secondly, I want to try to analyze what's actually happening in Acts 4, and I find this, that opposition to Christ is more about exerting power than about seeking truth. That's exactly what was going on here. Notice verse 2, it says, these opponents of Peter and John were, quote, greatly annoyed at what was being said. Now, it doesn't say that they reacted as men of great mentality would and say why that's wrong. What they're saying is untrue. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that their, their message was put to an intellectual test and found to be false. If you're annoyed, that's an emotional reaction. That's being irritated. You do something or say something that I just don't like. I, I wish you would do it differently. And I might be annoyed. A little child perhaps acts up when it's not supposed to and its parent is annoyed, irritated. That's the kind of reaction, a a subjective reaction, not an objective reaction. One commentator spoke about the Sadducees and said these folks were control freaks. They had to have everything their way on their turf and they viewed Jerusalem as their turf. Now, you know, sometimes I think that we Christians are a little too naive. We, we regard people who are not believers. We say, well, they're just like us. The unbeliever is just a person who doesn't have the right information yet. When he or she gets information, better information, more information, it will become convincing and their hearts will grasp the truth and their eyes will be open to see the gospel and, and worship Christ as I have. Yet that's not what we see here. It's not just a question of information. It's more a question of an aggressive, egregiously sinful, angry, almost hysterical reaction to that which they will not admit to be true. It's a rebellion against God of the kind that Romans 1 discusses when it says that sinful people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For centuries, unbelief has depended on a materialistic reaction to say what is true. And if you can't explain things materialistically the way they would, if you explain it supernaturally, their backs are up. That's why Darwinian evolution is is clung to by so many educational institutions and scientists today, even though very reliable scientists can show you the Swiss cheese holes in many aspects of evolution. Sure, there's what we call microevolution. You know, our generation, let's say, of young men growing to be great big football linebackers who would have been giants 
in George Washington's day. That's microevolution. That happens. But macroevolution does not happen. It has never been proved. There's no fossil evidence for it whatsoever of one species crossing into another species. And yet, scientists will say, oh no, this is our religion. It happens. It's the only explanation. And there have been honest scientists, sometimes honest evolutionists. Stephen Jay Gould, who has since died and knows better now, wrote at Harvard that why we have to have the Darwinian theory that species evolves to another species, not because we can prove it, but because the alternative is ridiculous. That's what he said. A great man of science. We cannot have this spiritual explanation that human life and human dignity and the human mind comes from an unseen God. And so you see the cards get laid face up on the table here in verse 7 when the apostles are challenged, by what authority or in what name did you do this? Notice that. It wasn't being asked, gee, I'd like to discuss with you whether what you're teaching is true. They're saying, we want to talk control. Whose control, whose power are you acting by? What power? did You see, power is the question. We can't control what you're saying, and therefore we're opposed to it. If we let your theory loose of supernaturalism, that this God who we can't see, this, this Jesus who we did see walking around is now alive and ruling on a throne in heaven, why, that would upset everything. Our whole materialistic scheme would be overthrown. And so we have to say to you, stop doing what you're doing. We don't care whether it's true or not. Don't do it. You see, it's all a question of power. It's not a question of truth. Two weeks ago, I attended a debate held at Messiah College with a few of you, and I knew others of you were there. I saw a few folks I knew from Westminster. There were a couple thousand people at Messiah for a debate between Christian speaker Dinesh D'Souza, and I won't name the, not because I have to hide his name, but the gentleman wasn't known to anyone who, who was the atheist. The debate subject was the existence of God. And I wanted to hear Robbie Zacharias speak afterwards, who gave a devastating uh, message, of course, supporting the existence of God. But I was somewhat disappointed in one way in the evening in that I thought for a big event like this, they would bring the biggest atheistic gun they could find. You know, I really thought this guy was going to be the big cannon that had great intellectual ammunition. He was, by the way, a former Pentecostal minister who had been a minister for 20 years who declaratively says God does not exist. What disappointed me so much was this man kept relying on a very flimsy defense. He kept falling back upon it. Time after time, he said, well, you have your faith. We atheists have reason. I wanted, it was all I could do. Not, my, my wife wasn't even there to hold me down, but I held myself down, and I didn't jump up and say, that's stupid. Because when an atheist says he has his reason, it's exactly what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 4. Where do you see reason being exercised by unbelief here? There is none. 
Reason means I will take facts and logically think them through, compare evidence, and follow to a conclusion wherever the evidence takes us. That's reason. That's almost never done by unbelief. Instead, what we see here is minds made up. Uh, You know, the, the apostles were going to be opposed no matter what because their system, their doctrine did not agree with the biased and prejudiced view that simply said, shut these people up. They can't be allowed to be heard. Back came Peter. You know, they derided Peter. They said, well, these guys, you know, I don't know whether they knew that Peter was just a fisherman. They definitely knew he hadn't been to their colleges and and received their degrees. When they uh, said in verse uh, 13 that these were uh, uneducated common men, the word uneducated is from idiotes. Can you get an idea what that word means? Peter was an idiot in their mind. They said, this guy doesn't know anything. He doesn't even have a bachelor's degree, let alone a doctorate. Who is he to tell us anything? Peter gave the bold reply in verses 8 to 12, which would be worth a sermon all by itself, as he said, look, you people are supposed to be the builders of God's house on earth, and you're missing the cornerstone of your temple. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And he says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name in heaven among men whereby we must be saved. You want to talk credentials? You want to talk authority? His is absolutely unique. And nobody you can bring against him has authority like his to do the things that you have seen here. Peter said it's Christ or nothing. And I love what what it says in verse 13. It's, it's almost my favorite little phrase in this chapter. The council of unbelief, quote, recognized that these men had been with Jesus. You could say, well, maybe they just recognized that they had Galilean accents or something, or they came from the north near Nazareth. I don't think that's what this is about at all. They recognized that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, was in these disciples that Jesus wasn't gone at all. They wouldn't be ready to admit this, but that he wasn't gone after all. He was not only had been with them, he was with them. He was reflected in them, in their thinking, in their words, in their boldness. Jesus was an unconquerable force present in his people. Thirdly here, a quick point. Again, worth spending time on more, but just notice this. Our text asks us to learn the one and only time that civil disobedience is justified on this earth by Christians. You see this council baffled by what they heard, came, commanded silence, don't do this anymore. And Peter answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot do other than to speak what we have seen and heard. Now, Romans 13 is the great keystone teaching of the New Testament on the submission of believers to the civil government. God puts civil governments in place. Those civil governments are often deeply flawed and ruled by evil, corrupted men and women. When when Paul wrote Romans 13, I always remind people, Nero Caesar, one of the most evil guys who's ever ruled in the ancient world, was in charge in Rome. 
But you read Romans 13 and it tells the Christian, it commands the Christian to submit to the lawful government and its laws, not to pick and choose and say, well, I don't like that law. Well, I don't like what they're doing with my taxes, so I won't pay taxes. Well, I don't get this idea of 35 miles an hour on Oregon Pike. I don't see why it shouldn't be 70. I'll go 70. You go ahead. And you'll end up in the traffic court down the road with one of our members sitting there to say greetings and salutations. And he won't be your friend. We cannot pick and choose the laws we want to obey. We are to obey the civil government because it's Romans says that person is put there by God, flawed as he is. However, there is the one occasion when the civil government would speak directly against God's clear revelation in any way. If the civil government does what has been done in China and says to you, your second child must be aborted, you not only can, you must disobey that government. We must obey God's commands. If the state speaks against a direct word of God, it is wrong, and that's when civil disobedience is not a difficult thing to figure out. It will be rare. It should be rare. But there, when it comes, the decision can be clear. Now, let me conclude this way. If you want to be laughed at, if you want to be scorned, if you kids in school, young people in high school, probably sometimes going to come in a classroom that you're going to say, if I say that or if I take that position, I'm not going to be included. The cool kids won't like me. <laughs> They're going to think I'm some kind of a Christian nut. If you want to be put to one side and regarded by others who are arrogant and put themselves above you, then just tell the world Jesus is the only Savior. And that will happen to you. Just tell the world that he is the ultimate power who must be served on heaven and earth, that he is the ultimate judge before whom every man or woman will one day stand and be judged by him. There's nothing so hateful to human minds than to hear that they do not themselves control their own destiny. You know what? Based on current indicators and current digressions or downgrading in the freedom of speech in this country, it will probably come a time when speaking at least outside the sanctuary of a church to say Jesus Christ is exclusively God and the only way to eternity becomes a hate crime. We aren't too far from it. Do you know that in Sweden, pastors are jailed, have been documented incidences, not for what they say in the public square, not with a bullhorn in some plaza, in their churches. They've been arrested for teaching the biblical teaching about homosexuality. Are we far away? I don't know. Maybe you better start sending me your names who will come to see me in jail because I'll go. I'll go. We need to speak the truth of God's word. And that gospel is going to see opposition. If merely avoiding other people's displeasure is your goal, you're going to have to sacrifice the gospel at some point. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Fear him who rather can kill body and soul in hell. 
Unbelief will lose. In the end, it will lose, it must lose, because it faces the Most High God who speaks in Psalm 2, one of the great Psalms. Early in the Psalms, it says, He sits in the heavens and laughs at the pretensions of those who vaunt themselves against him and against his son. He holds them in derision who will not bow before his son. Let me close with this little incident. I read about it only recently. Reading some obscure history of Christianity in Scotland almost 400 years ago now, well, 350 years ago. An obscure Christian, this man was no great man who had a lot of writings or anything, but a man named James Guthrie was a Scottish covenanter. You ought to learn about those people if you know nothing about them. They were some of the bravest Christians who ever lived. And they experienced fiery persecution from the King of England and the Church of England. And a friend of James Guthrie came to him one day and said, Guthrie, look, I know your outspokenness. I know your testimony for Christ. Real persecution is coming. You need to be quiet and duck. That's what he was told to do. Be quiet and duck. James Guthrie gave his life for Christ because what he said to that friend was this. There is no ducking in the kingdom of Christ. There is no ducking the opposition that we will have to face. Ladies and gentlemen, our times are a lot more difficult than maybe we're ready to admit. But we can say to unbelief, in all of its utterly predictable forms and faces, look, unbelief, you can lock up the messengers of Christ, but you cannot lock up the historic facts of the resurrection. You can substitute sarcasm towards us in place of pure logic and reason. You can use character assassination in in place of honestly investigating facts and drawing clear conclusions. You can even murder the messengers of the gospel, but you cannot hurt us eternally, and you cannot stop the advance of the kingdom of truth and light and life in Jesus Christ with your flimsy pretenses. Christ will stand at the end. Unbelief will lose. It will lose because it's false. Our Father, I pray that we might see these things at work. These aren't just acts for realities. You know, our God, how these things are permeating our whole society and determining how our children are taught. Things that they're told are tolerant and open-minded are folly and error and deep sin. We pray, our God, that we would be perceptive people and courageous people. Right down to the conversation with a neighbor or a friend or a family member. Help us not to be overbearing or belligerent, but understanding and perceptive that we might be courageous and speak for Jesus because he certainly will speak for us 
in the final day. We thank you in his name. Amen.